0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. i got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to get kind of right into it. Uh, but also a disclaimer, if you will, there's, there's so many things in this chapter I want to talk about today. I'm not going to get to them all. My hope is that I'll focus on the, the most important things. Maybe leave you with some things to follow up with and and maybe even wrestle with, be challenged by. So, there we are. A uh, quick recap. Get us where we are today. This is week three. Uh, the first week we talked about creation. We talked about God being a creator. That's his nature. Uh, he he just, uh, that, that's part of who he is. And he created us. He created all of what we see in creation. And he declared it all good. And we in particular were made in God's image. Uh, again, lots of, lots of, Factors involved there, Uh, but that was kind of week one. Uh, Week two, we looked at just day seven that God set apart, blessed, uh, honored as a separate day. And even in in the in the chapter we we look at, it's in chapter two. It's separated from chapter one. There's something special set apart about that day, and we were reminded that really it's a day of rest. This idea of Sabbath uh, rest really important. For a couple of reasons. One is to remind us that God is in control. Uh, the idea that God is a God who, even though he's a creative God, he knows when to say enough, and he finished what he started uh, and it was good and that's where we left that. But rest also, yes, it reminds us that God's in control, that God knows what he's doing and he's not holding out on us. but it also rest reminds us uh, that practice of creating space reminds us that our value is not in what we do, it's not in what we produce. It's in being made in God's image, it's being made by him. So that takes us to where we are today, chapter 3, The Fall. Uh, Maybe titled in your uh, chapter 3 for Genesis, uh, sometimes known as, hey, this is when sin entered the world and the narrative changes completely. Uh, And (laughs) I don't want us to be distracted from maybe the main point by being just focused on the fact that, yes, this uh, some people have looked at it maybe shallow and said, well, this is where now mankind becomes bad, and we make bad decisions. We have this new sin nature in us. And God has changed at this point, too. God now becomes a God of judgment and punishment, that God somehow looks at us differently. Uh, I want to back off of that and say, is there a deeper Story here that God is trying to tell, a story that's consistent. Like we said, we were looking for the common thread. Is, is there a story, even in the midst of this negative turn of mankind, that's about relationship, it's about restoration, it's about redemption? And that's what we're going to hopefully discover today. I'm excited about being able to see this chapter in a little different light than maybe what you've looked at it uh, before. So with that, uh, a little background, I want to start actually in Genesis 1, 27, kind of the, again, remind us of the creation of man, what that looked like, mankind. So Genesis 1, is where we're starting, and it goes this way. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And just in those short verses, this really, we have to emphasize a couple of things really important. Again, God created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created us. He created mankind. So first thing we have to recognize is that God is not a man. <laughs> you know, we kind of get used to reading our Bible like in the male pronoun. But God is not a man. Somehow, God is both male and female. Uh, in the In the Hebrew, when it talks about creation story, it talks about the Holy Spirit, the Ruah that hovered over the oceans, that took part in creation. That's a feminine form uh, of the word, uh, Ruah. Uh, so very important that we are male and female is necessary to be really created in God's image. And we'll get to that uh, importance again in a minute. Well, uh, <laughs> Next chapter, next uh, next chapter, but next verse here, Genesis two seven, God continues the narrative, and now it says, "And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being." So God forms mankind out of the dust of the earth, and by the way, really important, Adam. We look at the word Adam in Genesis; it's not a male. Identity In the Hebrew, Adam means, ready, dirt. That's what Adam means. It's not like this guy. Uh, And I think that's important because it's signifying that somehow whatever God created out of the earth was male and female. I would just throw out for us to think about that maybe this first being that God created, and I'll uh, expand on it in a minute, but is it possible that, that that first being was both male and female. Because then he goes on and he says this in chapter 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Uh, So again, he's talking to a singular being at this point. He puts man, mankind, human, into the garden, gives him instruction, you're to enjoy all of this, just don't eat from this. So he gives him great freedom, but also restriction. Uh, He gives him choice, if you will, enters into the picture. Uh, So then it goes on. Then it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, there it is. There's the next part. (laughs) Really interesting because the next chapter you would think would go right into how God created the female but it isn't the next chapter God gives man the task of naming all the animals how long did that take God's already declared man is lonely I must have a suitable helper for him Adam I got a job for you it may take you I don't know 50 years but I'm going to parade all the animals you get to name them that'd be Kind of a fun job, but kind of tiring. Oh, I don't know, ant. Oh, you know, crazy job. But what's interesting about that, he gives them that task, which seems like it's totally out of context. But then at the, uh, at the end of that process, it says this. Genesis 2.20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So it's like, God, is, is this is a speed dating thing. Anything you like here? Anything suitable, Adam? But he is, I mean, in the midst of his loneliness, he's looking for. And I think God is parading the animals in front of him and having him name all the animals and be familiar, almost to say, you are different from these animals. You won't find what you were looking for in the rest of my creation. I'm going to have to do something different and unique. So then the next chapter, the next in the story. Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord God cre- uh, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Well, this is fascinating narrative uh, because we also find a little different another spot where God talks about the animals. So that he formed all the animals, all the living creatures out of the dust of the earth and mankind he formed out of the dust of the earth. But now he goes a different direction. Now he takes man, causes him to go into a deep sleep and takes out of the man, separates out of this, for your consideration, this one being with both elements. And he takes a part of Adam, separates it and forms woman. Uh, I, I think that's a fascinating, unique way. But if we think about Again, if we're creating God's image, God is three in one. He has his separation. He has his different ways of identifying, but his true identity is being unified, is being one. And I think there's a mystery in there that we don't quite understand. The, uh, the, the profoundness of male and female both, the, the ordained idea of them being co-equal and uh, necessary to fulfill together equally what God had in mind um, so that's that's what God does um, goes on says he presents her to the man and Adam said this now is bone of my bone this is flesh of my flesh uh, this is part of me basically so she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man she was separated from man um Different picture. Therefore, kind of like the author's insert in here, therefore man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, <laughs> and I think that it's an interesting uh, justification, uh, an important statement to say that that's why marriage it was something instituted by God, not created by man, but instituted by God for man and woman because there's this unique relationship. There's something taken out of Adam that can only be reunified with his counterpart. Uh, And I think it's deeper than marriage. I think he's really making the statement that mankind, to fulfill what God had in mind, to fulfill the the goodness of creation, was meant to be male and female together equally, fulfilling what God had in mind. So, uh, there they are. And then this last statement and they were both naked the man and his wife and were not ashamed kind of throw that in there and on its own you kind of think well that's interesting they kind of mention that but it's going to be repeated over and over and over again in different ways this idea of nakedness what's the deal with this obsession with nakedness in genesis uh but if it uh if we really look at it deeply we understand that there's a reason why god uses that um so <clears throat> there we are there we are um then, then we get into uh, chapter 3. Now we get into the, the failure, the fall, uh, what went wrong. And it starts in Genesis 3, 1 to 5. It starts with a temptation. It starts with how do we get mankind to fail. And it starts out this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? i have to take a time out here and just... I don't know if you've missed it. We kind of gloss over it. We're used to the story. It was a talking serpent. Eve didn't seem to be. Oh, talking serpent! Great. Like it's kind of weird. Kind of part of the story. I don't know what, why that's in there, but there it is. It's uh, it's reasoning. It's talking. It's trying to argue with. It's challenging Eve. Um. Well, obviously representing uh, something deeper. But just interesting this. Well, Okay, then uh, the woman said to the serpent, no, no, we may eat from, it, from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, we notice a couple things here. One is this, there, there's two ways that the enemy is, is formula for trying to get us to not trust God, to not trust the story. The first one is to misquote Scripture. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the fruit of the garden? Well, he didn't say that, but he's challenging. And I would say that's a good challenge to us. Do we understand the word enough to be able to say, no, 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 that's not what God said. But then notice also she adds to what God said. Uh, you must not even touch it or you'll die. Like, I don't know where that came from. God didn't say that. God said you can't eat the fruit. She added, oh, you can't even touch it or you'll die. And... So so she kind of knew the word. She defended herself there. She resisted, but then phase two kicks in. And now the serpent challenges what she didn't understand about what God said. You won't certainly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll know the difference between good and evil. It'll be like God was the temptation. So the second challenge, the second way the enemy comes after us if we don't know the Word, if we're not trusting in what God actually said, then He challenges us to say, "Well, actually, you can be like God. You can do this for yourself." And he, says, and he gives her this desire, and uh, let me read that first, because this is how she, she gives in Genesis 3:6,, uh, first 6, 6 part. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So that's where she gave in. It's like the enemy says, no, no, you, you can't trust God. This, that won't happen. You'll actually, this is good for you. You can control this decision yourself. You can make something good out of this. Uh, you can be like God. And that's where she trips up. That's where did not trust what God had said. Uh, so there's the, uh, the first part of it, the failure, if you will. Um, and then, secondly, really important to read this verse right, she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Notice it didn't say, wasn't a conversation between the two of them. It's going, Adam, hey, I know you haven't been around here, but come on over here, i got some fruit for you. Don't even ask me where it came from, here you go. I mean, that's kind of what we think the guy didn't even know what was going on. But he's just as guilty as she is because he was there. He heard the conversation. He didn't say anything. He didn't defend her. He didn't defend them. He didn't trust God. Uh, He took it and ate it too. I would suggest maybe out of the same motivation. He heard the temptation. He said, Yeah, I want to be like God. I want to know. I want to control this. I want something good from this. And yeah, it does look good. Uh, It feeds into my desire, uh, in essence. And back to the animal part of the story. Because animal instinct, they do whatever they desire. It's natural. There is no restraint. And we talked about last week, no, God knows when to say enough. He makes us in his image. Do we know when to say enough? Because do we have restraint or control over our decisions to trust that what God has given us is enough? He's not holding out on us. I don't need more than what God gives me. Uh, That that would be the the narrative there. Uh, hmm. Something else I was going to mention, but I can't remember what else. I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, So then, the the result of this uh, this this is the the key part. Seven verse seven says, "Then the eyes of both of them were open, just like the enemy said. They were able to see differently." and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves and covered themselves there's that naked thing again of all the reactions that you would have you just took mankind down this unbelievably desperate road of disobedience and non-trust to god and the first thing they noticed we're naked let's cover ourselves not guilt not remorse not they recognized they were naked and they covered themselves what What's the deal there? Interesting phrase. <laughs> uh, verse 9 and 10. God kind of plays on this. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Uh, and I have to stop here because you know, your first response is, well, God knows where he's at. Why is God asking him, where are you? Oh, I see you. It's not like playing hide and seek. But it, again, in the Hebrew, it's important. There's two words for where. One is the one we typically think of, like, Adam, where are you geographically? Like, are you over there? Are you over here? Uh, but there's a second word, and the best way I came up with an analogy would be like if I misplaced my keys, I might sincerely say, "Hey, where are my keys?" And I go looking for them because I want to know where they are. Like that's sincere. I don't know. I better find out where they are. But also, <laughs> could be the second way to use that word is like I know I always put them on the kitchen counter. And I go there, they're not where they're supposed to, where, where are they? Like, I, I'm, I'm less concerned about going to find where they actually are, and more concerned about, why, they're, why aren't they there? Why aren't they where they're supposed to be? And that's kind of the context of this. Adam, where are you? Where, 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 not where are you so much as why are you hiding? What's going on? Did you eat of the tree? Uh, the second part of that, did you eat of the, of the tree? Um... <clears throat> And he goes on, this is what his response was, 9 and 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. (laughs) Again, there's that naked thing. (laughs) I heard you, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I would suggest that ever since that episode, that's... Kind of the characteristics of mankind. Fear enters into our world. There's this dominant sense of fear and insecurity. And we're always hiding. We're always covering for God. We're always trying to make up for what was somehow lost here. That that nakedness re- represents our shame. There's somehow, whatever act this was we did, brings shame to me. And I'm, cover, I'm trying to cover my shame. And we're trying to cover our shame as part of our nature now. Uh, that 's the result that 's the what 's what 's happened here uh, so well next genesis three eleven then God follows up with this: who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked uh, interesting question this This now begins the blame game in our nature since that point because the man says, "Oh, the woman that you placed here with me." She ate it and gave it to me, and I. You know. So it was her fault. And then the woman, how oh, was that serpent? He deceived me. And somehow this this break, this broken connection between them and God affects not just their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and I'm going to suggest even with our relationship with creation. There's some something, something's happened to the whole system because of the choice of not trusting God because of our Decision to be like God, uh, which really is what should redefine sin. Is sin is less about what we do; it's more a condition of wanting to run our own lives. It comes out in lots of different ways. We tend to get way too obsessed with the symptoms of sin. Like, oh, I sinned. I did all these things, but that's not as big an issue of why did you? You've got this condition in you. You've got this. It's like it's like having a the flu like you wouldn't say necessarily well I've got a cough and I've got those are symptoms what do you have really it's a virus that's in you that's causing you to do all these other things and we get hung up on the symptoms we get it's all about morality but no no it's really all about us wanting to be in control it's about that condition that now affects us Um, that's what God is referring to Um, so the blame game uh, ultimately, then again it 's more about a broke a broken relationship than it is doing things wrong that 's the essence of the fall. Uh, <laughs> we started out with this being valued, being good, uh, having great peace, having great security, being in an intimate relationship with God now, because of that decision, now we have insecurity we have we're hiding, we're covering, we're afraid. That's the condition we find ourselves in. That's the result. Uh, there's, a, there's a book that I will I'll recommend, but it's a book that uh, I read, I don't know, 20 years ago, somewhere in there, 15 years ago. But for the last 10 years or so, uh, we've used this book. It's called Searching for God Knows What. Kind of an interesting title by a guy named Donald Miller. Uh, kind of a provocative author. might enjoy him, but uh, I would recommend it. He talks about this he talks about that idea of what what's going on here Uh, we've used this in our discipleship first semester for freshmen that came this was our focus and we had great discussions about this so we did it every year Uh, but i wanted to take three excerpts uh, page 70 71 and 107 if you're caring (laughs) but here they are here's what he says here's what donald miller says i love it fits so well Moses was explaining all of humanity right there in Genesis chapter 3. Man is wired so that he gets his glory, his security, his understanding of value, his feeling of purpose, his feeling of, of rightness with his maker, his security for eternity from God. And this relationship is so strong. God's love is so pure that Adam and Eve felt no insecurity at all. So much so they walked around naked and didn't even realize They were naked. But when that relationship was broken, they knew it instantly. All of their glory, the glory that came from God, was gone. God wired us so that he told us who we were. And outside that relationship, the relationship that said we were loved and valuable and beautiful, we're very good, we didn't have any worth at all. When that relationship was broken, man would now be pining for other people to tell him that he was good, right, okay with the world, and eternally secure. I really started wondering if maybe a human is defined by who loves him. I, I love that description. It's like we've lost this connection. They, Adam and Eve initially had God, God's security. You're valuable. You're beautiful. You're awesome. I made you that way. And then they get this brokenness. They've lost that connection. Now who's going to tell them? They're looking for other people. They're looking for other things to assure them of their value. I think it's crazy how we live uh, in, a, in a culture, if you will, of incredible comparison and competition. I mean, if you, if you defined our culture, that, those would be two words you might use to best describe what our culture is like. Uh, just think about it. Think of sports for a minute. I mean, there's, you know, I, I like playing sports, played a lot of basketball, played a lot of this and that growing up. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spectator sports. Why, why do we have this incredible obsession with spending money and having this unbelievably huge industry of putting two teams against each other and we care about who wins the game? Like, what it, what's the point of that? Why? Why do we put so much value in it? As a college student, it's like, well, my college is better than you. We beat you in basketball last year. It's like it defines our value. It defines our worth. If you stop and think about how much goes into that, that because if I win, it tells me I'm better, I'm more important. We're looking for something outside of God to tell us of our value. And that's kind of our culture shaped. Think about entertainment. Think about TV reality TV how many reality TV shows are there most of them you know idol how many 30 years now idol where you're performing trying to demonstrate that I'm really valuable America's got talent you got the bachelor let's find out I mean why would you care and I say that but I know there are people in this room probably know who won the bachelor 3 years ago like it has any effect on your life whatsoever Somehow we live through that competition. We live through that acknowledgement that I'm valuable enough. I'm, I can win this. I can be the most important person in the room. I can find my true love, find somebody who will tell me I'm worth everything. Uh, that's why we do that. I, mean, I think of just a, a phase in our life. It's called middle school, maybe the best definition of this whole condition. I mean, middle school is a, a laboratory of experiment to say how do I fit in what do I what do I have to do am I in the right crowd when I was in junior high my thing was the swingers club it wasn't the same term as we have now <laughs> but to be you had to be accepted but you also had to have a p- polka dot shirt i begged my mom for a polka dot shirt so i could be part of the swingers club <laughs> never happened wasn't accepted uh, but in young life we talk about what marks an age group and in middle school the question is the question students are asking is do you love me it's like they, if somebody walks into their world and, and accepts them it's like bam they're not judgmental they're, they just want to know that somebody loves them they want to confirm that they're worth something they want somebody to tell them that they're loved uh, so again who told you you were naked? I think there's a second part of that. God, it's not a rhetorical question, but it could be a great question for us. Who told you you were naked? I told you you were this way. I told you you were valuable, loved, because of who you are. Whose voice are you listening to now? You've lo- we've lost the voice of God because we have so many other voices in our culture that cry out to us, say, no, no, you're not enough. No, no, you'll never make it. No, no. This thing that you've done defines you. Uh, all the voices we listen to, even our parents, well meaning parents, our voices can harm at times because we do. We care about how good our kids are. And if they're not good and they get those messages and they wonder if I'm good enough, if I'm loved, if I'm valuable. Uh, so, who told you you were naked it applies to us just as it did to Adam and Eve. Um, and finally, social media. You know, we grew out of middle school, but we, I mean, let's be honest. Look at social media. It's just the definition of terms tells you everything you need to know. How many people like me? How many people follow me? How many friends do I have? I need more friends. I need to be more valuable. Um, I'm only going to put my best out there. Hopefully, somebody says, Oh, great looking dress. Great. Oh, that must have been a great game. You look great in that, you know congratulations. I mean, we're looking for that. That's just our nature. We are constantly trying to make up for what's missing, cover up what we've lost. Uh, That's our nature. Well, consequences. And this is where I want to get into that thread. Is is there a deeper truth in this story? Because what are the consequences for this? Well, God directly attacks the serpent says, You, above all animals, are cursed. He curses the serpent. You will now crawl on your belly and eat dirt. So he gives him that. I mean, this is a direct curse to the creature, to the serpent, for what you've done. And then he goes on and gives this prophecy. From now on, your offspring and her offspring will have enmity between each other. There'll be this adversarial relationship. And eventually, you'll uh, wound his heel. You'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So do you catch that? At the very middle of their failure, God is already telling the enemy, you're cursed, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to make up for what just happened. That really sets the narrative for the rest of the story that we're going to talk about. So I would suggest that in the middle of the failure, God isn't backing off, God is entering into it. And then he goes on and talks to what's going to happen with the man and the woman. And notice he doesn't curse them. We kind of think that's what he would do. He cursed the serpent, curses man, curses woman. But he didn't do that. What he did say to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. Because of what you've done, it even affects creation. The ground is no longer going to perform the way I intended it to. And It's less about God cursing it as it is, there are consequences to what we've done to mess up what God intended. It's less about God punishing. It's more about you, do, you, you don't trust God's voice. You don't do what he says. You don't trust the story. Things will happen. Not because God has to do anything, because you've messed up the system. Uh, so the ground will no longer produce. The way God initially intended is all this, these trees are going to grow up and grains, and all this stuff's going to come out of the ground, and you, all you have to do is pick it up. All you have to do is eat it. But he said, now the ground is cursed. There's going to be thorns and thistles. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to till the ground. You're going to have to sweat on your brow to produce what was supposed to be natural and easy. And then to the woman, he says similar. He says, now because of what you've done, the man, it was his identity, his purpose is produce. That's going to be hard now. To the woman, he says, now you'll experience pain in childbirth. That's the result of going against what I had in in mind. If you think about no other animal has the kind of pain that we do as humans. And I think it's less about God creating the pain as as, is we experiencing now this pain as part of our identity. It was never supposed to be that way in in producing food or in bearing children. Um, So it's not about God cursing us, it's about here's what's going to happen. And then these two proclamations which I think are really, really important. Galatians 3, or Galatians, Genesis 3.16 says this. Your desire now will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And sometimes we take that as if, hey, the new order in town, now I'm going to make sure that the man rule." No, this is a negative consequence of what you did. It was never intended that way. Now you, your desire will be for him, and he'll rule over you. That's a negative statement. Because initially, I created woman out of man. Together, they're supposed to do this equal status. But from this point on, nature's going to take over. Biology's going to take over. Your your base instincts are going to take over. And man is going to rule over you. Um, I hope we see that connection. It's not part of God's plan. Uh, not part of his intention. And then, <laughs> similarly, Adam gets into it. Genesis 3.20 Adam then named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. It sounds like a a blessing, but it's really another negative response. Because what did he name her first? He first named her woman because she came out of man. Her identity, her value was in who she was, who she was created to be. My equal, my companion, she came out of man. That's your name, woman. Now he renames her Eve. Now her name reflects her purpose and her value is in what she produces. Now you'll be known as the mother of all living. Your value, your purpose is now going to be in what you produce. And we talked about it last week. That kind of defines our our nature. as We we think our value comes from what we do and not from how God made us. So even the naming of Eve reflects that. Uh, Well... most important we're going to turn to the next verse but I just want to preface this one because again in the midst of our failure in the midst of this negative story this turn in the wrong direction God is right in the middle of it uh, here's what it says in Genesis 3.21 also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them I mean you kind of look at that and go eh, that's nice you know how drastic that is? Because initially God made all the food to be vegetables, fruit. So you can eat any of the fruit of the trees, any of the things that grow out of the ground. Didn't say anything about animals. But now God is meeting them in their shame. He's meeting them in their failure. He says, I will cover you. The covering you have is not going to do it for you. Uh, even the covering I am going to give you is temporary. But God is sending a message. He says, I will sacrifice part of my creation in order f- to cover your shame. He not only meets us in our shame, his desire is to cover our shame. So this is where the inst- he institutes this idea of blood has to be shed to cover for what you did. And you're going to do this until I provide my own son as a sacrifice to cover your shame once and for all. From the very moment of failure, God's desire, his obsession, his, the rest of the story is about how am I going to win these people back? How am I going to make up for, how am I going to cover their shame? Uh, that's the way God looks at it. No, no different than he did before. I think God, God may be more heartbroken than Adam and Eve were in their decision. God didn't go, God, Punishment. I think God goes, what am I going to do? What's it going to take to get you back the way I wanted it? Nothing's changed in God's plan to the point of I will, if necessary, I will separate myself and kill my own son so that we could be back together again. That's God's reaction to the fall. That is the continued narrative from that point on that he tells us in the rest of the Bible. and We're going we're to conclude with communion, but I'm going to do it a little differently because there's a story associated with that last day where Jesus rises from the dead that connects to this story. Maybe you haven't heard this. I heard this about three years ago, and it just it blew me away, but it changed the way I looked at this. It fits this story. It's found in Luke 24... It's the only gospel that tells this story and it's kind of a weird story, frankly, to me, when I've read it over and over again. Uh, It's it's the day that Jesus rises from the dead. And we all know Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to Mary, the disciples kind of a little bit here, a little bit there, and then he disappears. And then that afternoon, the same day, he appears to two people on the road to Emmaus. Spends hours with them. If you're if you're the risen Lord of the universe, where would you spend your time? What would you do on that first day? Okay, he appeared to Mary, he appeared to Sarah, But then he spends hours, much more time than he did with the others, with this random couple on the road walking out of Jerusalem. And he walks along and he walks up to them and he says, Hey, what are you talking about? And it identifies one of them as Cleopas the only name we got. I was going to, Cleopas, oh, must be a real person. Well, how come it didn't name the other one? I don't know. But he gives us a clue. If you look at John 19, 25, it says this. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, hmm, Clopas, same name, and Mary Magdalene. So John inserts that in there. There are probably more people around the cross, but he points out those three Marys and the sister of the mother Mary those are the ones he identified well here's Mary so this isn't just a random I always pictured it as a couple guys walking along the road but it's a couple it's a man and a wife walking along the road Jesus said what are you talking about are you the only one that hasn't heard about what happened and they explain that this guy Jesus was convicted and eventually crucified and the rumor has it he's risen he's risen from the dead although we haven't seen him and then Jesus goes into this narrative he says well he had to be he had to die and then and then this amazing Bible study took place on this 10 mile walk to uh, Emmaus where God starts probably in this story and points out all the places in the narrative from there on to explain why Jesus had to come why it was Jesus what his purpose was (laughs) and they get done with all of that I would, I'd love a transcript of that conversation that would be good uh, but that's kind of what we're hoping to do here is let's get a little better picture of the narrative that God's trying to tell but then at the end it looks like Jesus is going to walk on and they say can you stay with us can we have dinner together can we share a meal and so he does it's Like I got nothing better to do and I just rose from the dead and, uh, and then this amazing verse When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they realized it was him. It's the retelling of the story in Genesis we just looked at. There was a couple who took something and ate it, and their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked, and it began this broken relationship with God with all the consequences and this covering up until Jesus came now they take the bread, they eat it their eyes are opened and they realized it's him, he has covered our shame for good, this is the end of the story Uh, we can now be back together with him, there's nothing in the way anymore We can have the voice of God. We can have the intimacy. We can have all of what we lost if we continue to trust the story. Maybe not in the same way it'll be when we're together in the next chapter, but we can still have that relationship back. Uh, And they realized he was the one that he disappeared. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.